Glad to be with you. My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you're here with us today. Glad if you're joining us online. And I'm wondering, have you ever heard of, let me get this right, the Amorphophallus titanum? It's a flower, in case you wondered. In fact, it's one of the largest flowers on earth. It can grow to almost six feet in height, and it's native uh, to Indonesia. And one of the things that's crazy about it is this thing grows, you plant its seed, it takes seven to 10 years before it ever blooms. And to give you a hint, like I'm 5'11 and a half, six foot on a good day with the right shoes, but they, they, the flower gets taller than me, right? And uh, it blooms every then after that, sometimes every few years, sometimes every decade. And it's just, it's an incredible flower. Well, in 2018, there's a place out in San Marino, California called the Huntington. And it's a library and an art museum and a botanical garden. And they had three of them bloom in 2018. And people flocked from all over the place to see this flower. I mean, you'll see a picture of it here in a moment. Uh, again, the, the Amorphophallus titanum. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but it's not, it makes me sound smart, doesn't it? When I say the whole name of the flower. And, uh, you know, you think if a flower this big, surely it's going to have, uh, it's going to smell that much greater than any small little flower in my house, right? Maybe that's why everybody wants to go see it and gawk at it. Now they gagged at it because it's actually the, the stinkiest flower on earth. I mean, it puts out this vile smell when it blooms every 10 years or so. <clears throat> A writer from USA Today said this about it. Uh, the flower is distantly related to the lily, but it looks more like something out of Little Shop of Horrors. It emits an odor that smells like rotting flesh, hence its Indonesian name, Bunga Bangkai, which means literally corpse flower. <laughs> That's not awful. It just sounds terrible. So behold, the corpse flower, there it is. And maybe another slide here, you can even see it a little better. People just gawking at it, flying around, wanting to take a picture of it. Uh, they had three of them at the Huntington in 2018. They named them Stink, Stank, and Stunk were the three names of these flowers that bloomed. I don't know about you, but this flower, it reminds me of some people. You know, uh, none of you, of course, but, you know, big and audacious and really, you know, just, oh, that's got to be just a great flower, big, beautiful, bigger than life, got everything going for it. But then when you get close and it blooms, it's pretty putrid and it stinks and it's kind of vile, and rather than making you want to run and smell more, you want to run away and run from it. And you discover sometimes when you get close to people, they're not the same as they are from a distance. And the reality is all of us are like that to some degree, aren't we? I mean, uh, we can put on a good show, and you get, get close, and you realize, oh, we're all still also pretty messed up. But some people especially... And their stench causes you to run the other direction. And, and, you know, it's curious, too, that this flower, do you know it only blooms for 24 hours? About 24 hours. And then shortly afterwards, it dies and just flops over. <laughs> 
James tells us that life is like a vapor. It's like a mist that like we're here for an instant and then we're gone. Isaiah tells us that, uh, that all flesh is like grass, like a flower that withers and fades away. Here for a moment and then gone. And left on our own, we're a lot like the corpse flower. Big to do growing up, but then we bloom and just a stank. And then it's over. There's good news though, because Jesus comes and he gives us his goodness and it allows us to grow not the corpse flower of our life, but the fruit of the spirit. And the opposite of this is the fruit of the spirit. And when the fruit of the spirit grows in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not a stench that drives people away, but it's actually very attractive, especially in a world like we're living in. That's why we're in this series on the fruit of the Spirit. Paul tells us that as we walk by the Spirit, in step with the Holy Spirit, following Jesus, that, that we bear fruit. And rather than stink in our sin, he gives a whole list of sin in Genesis 5, or Genesis, Galatians 5. And then in Galatians 5, uh, verses 22 and 23, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, do you know it yet? Have you memorized it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That's where we're stopping today. We're going to look at goodness, the fruit of goodness. So with that, let me pray. And we're going to be jumping around different places in scripture today. And uh, we're going to unpack this idea of biblical goodness, the fruit of goodness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you uh, that he is good eternally in a complete opposite of us. Thank you, Jesus, that not only are you alone good, but you then give us your goodness. We're not left on our own to stink. You give us your goodness so that we can go out then and do good works. Holy Spirit, would you teach us today? Teach me I teach. And would you ripen the fruit of your spirit in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about goodness today, the fruit of goodness. So let's, let's define that a second. What is goodness? Well, uh, goodness, you might just boil it down to moral excellence. A close synonym to it, and one that I'm going to use interchangeably with it today, is righteousness, uh, the fruit of righteousness. Well, what's righteousness? Righteousness is simply rightness. What's right all the time? That's righteousness. And, and Jesus, friends, was perfectly righteous. You know, not like Ferris Bueller, you know, when they call in and he's a righteous dude. No, like Jesus truly is righteous, totally perfect. He alone, in fact, is good. He's good perfectly good. He alone is good. God alone is good. Jesus is God and he is, what's the word? Good and righteous. You know, in, in Africa, Christians in Africa often have this kind of uh, repeating phrase. They'll say back and forth to one another, sometimes in worship, and it's made its way here. Maybe you've done this before. Somebody will be up front and they'll say, God is good. And everybody will shout back. Oh, you've heard it. So let's try that. God is good. And then I'll say, all the time, God is good. And it's so true. He's good all the time. And all the time, he is good. In fact, God's goodness is fundamental 
It's a fundamental assertion, a frequent assertion of Scripture, God's goodness. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He's good. Psalm 119, you are good, and what you do, Lord, is good. And Psalm 19 says, the fear of the Lord is clean, and it endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, altogether good, altogether righteous. There's there's nothing of fault to be found in who God is or in who Jesus is. His goodness is everlasting. It's perfect. Think about that. Jesus' righteousness, his goodness is, is perfect goodness. Your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true, Lord, the psalmist says in 119. Moses, some of you, uh, uh, you know the story of Moses. If, if you're, you're new to all this church stuff, new to scripture, and you're like, who's Moses? Well, Moses was in slavery in Egypt with God's people, and God raised him up to deliver his people out of slavery. And they, they cross the Red Sea, and they get out on their way to a land that God had promised their ancestor uh, Abraham. And they get to, the, to Mount Sinai, and uh, Moses asks God to show his glory to him. And uh, God agrees, but only, you know, from a distance through a crack in the rock. And, uh, but look at how it describes this, what God says. He says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. His goodness. He's, he's perfectly good. It's not a surprise then when, when Moses, he writes a song later on and he, he keys in on this goodness. The rock, the Lord, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he, totally perfect, completely good, fully, eternally, perfectly righteous. You know, uh, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what they appear to be, God is good and he does good. It's who he is. It's axiomatic to our understanding of God. In other words, it's, uh, do you know what I mean by that? Like an axiom in mathematics, like everything kind of rotates and hinges on this, God's goodness, and that all that he does is good. And of course, uh, Jesus is God as a member of the Trinity, and he is eternally and perfectly and alone good and righteous. He is. You know, one of the things when you think about goodness is that that goodness, as it's defined in Scripture, uh, in in terms of living out goodness, uh, it it often will do what's right no matter what, even when it hurts. Jesus does this all the time. In fact, Jesus was described as going about doing good. Peter told Cornelius when he described Jesus to him, in, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he said, Jesus, he's always going about doing good when he walked the earth. He was going about doing good. And one of the things in terms of always doing what's right, even when it hurts, I mean, we could have a huge list of things that Jesus did because it was right in his goodness, even when it was hard. He never took the easy way out. The, the devil tempted him to take an easier route in the wilderness, right? When he was tempted, popularity, You know, some kind of spectacular death-defying stunt and leap off the temple, political power, and yet Jesus turned it all down 
in order to do what was right. Why? Because he's perfectly good. He always does what's good and right, righteous, rightness. Simon Peter, he tried to deflect him away from the whole idea of suffering and crucifixion. And yet Jesus still went to the cross because it was right. It was good. He's good. Uh, Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers, they, they approach him at one time while he's teaching and they come to the door and they're like, hey, is Jesus in there? And everybody's like, hey, Jesus, your, your mom and your brothers are here. And it, it, as you read the text, you find out they wanted to come because they thought he was going a little crazy. He had taken the whole church thing a little too far. And Jesus, why don't you come home? And he said, no, actually, uh, who are my mother and brothers but those who obey the word of the Lord, who follow me, in other words. And even though it was hard, he said, uh, that's what's right, that's what's good, even if it costs potentially that relationship with my family. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded with God to take, every, to, to take what was in front of him away, but he still chose to do the Father's will, to die on the cross. They arrested him. He could have called on a legion of angels, but he didn't. Pontius Pilate, even, when he was before Pontius Pilate, Jesus was staring the cross in the face and he offered him a way out, but Jesus refused it. He always did and does what is right because he's perfectly good and righteous. Do you know, do you know why they murdered Jesus on the cross? It's because he claimed to be God. They couldn't find anything that he had done wrong, simply the fact that he claims to be God. Okay, what did he do wrong? I don't know, but he claims to be God. That's what he does wrong. Well, unless you're God, then it's not wrong. And he was. In fact, everyone who knew him couldn't find anything wrong with him. Listen to this. Peter, one of his disciples, spent three years of his life with him, says about Jesus, he committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. John, the apostle John, who by many accounts was Jesus' best friend, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Now, how many of you would say that about your best friend? That there's no sin in her. There's no sin in him. You might say they're a pretty good guy. She's a pretty good lady. But perfect? Ah, come on, nobody's perfect, right? That's what we always hear, except Jesus. John's like, actually, my friend, perfect. Perfect, never sinned. And nobody can find anything wrong with him other than the fact that he claimed to be God. Jesus alone is good. But we're called to be good, and I wonder, where does our goodness come from? I wonder, have you ever thought about this question? Have you ever asked it? Because it gets asked a lot in our culture. Are we born good? It gets assumed a lot. Are, are people born good? This might not seem like a big question, but it's really a pretty foundational and fundamental question, an existential one. Are we born good? Our, our culture seems to think so. You know, that, that the reason people do bad things, that bad things happen is because of people maybe being born into, they're born good, but they grow up in an environment where things aren't good. And listen, there's truth to that, is there not? I mean, you put yourself or, or a child is born into a situation where, where things are not good and where things are unhealthy. And the chances are that that's going to prove true in their life as they grow older as well. But um, 
the Bible takes it deeper, and really the question I'm asking is deeper. I mean, like all the way in your core, are you born good? Are people born good? And I don't mean like with a degree of goodness, but I mean totally good. No corruption whatsoever. Parents, think about your own kids. Ask that question. Were they born good? If they were, then who taught them to say no? Like one of their first words, I guarantee, was probably no. And not just no, it was no. With, with some oomph behind it, right? No, I'm not doing that. No, get out of my face. No. Who taught them that? You didn't? Well, if they're born good, you sure did. You're responsible for all their wickedness. That's the environment they grew up in. Maybe they weren't born good. The Bible says that we're not born good. Parents seem to know this intrinsically, that you don't have to teach your kids to be bad or teach them bad behavior. I mean, the best parent in the world would struggle with this and does. See, I would, I would argue from Scripture, Scripture would argue that that expression of, of bad behavior, that no, that, that sin is actually a natural expression of their humanity, of their corrupt humanity. Um, and that perspective, it's viewed uh, with, with disdain in our culture, but, I mean, the, the evidence for it is overwhelming. Just think about cultures over time. How else do you explain uh, just kind of the wicked nature, uh, perverse nature of nearly every, really not nearly, every society on earth? Of every society, think about it. Bloody warfare has been at the center of every society for thousands of years. We've invented ways to kill people and to wage war. People of every race, every creed, they've, they've done wicked things. Rape and pillage and plunder and harm people and kill people. And yeah, maybe there were some little periods of peace here and there, but it was just enough time to reload and go again. I mean, Plato said this uh, over 2,000 years ago, only dead men have seen an end to war. It's true. How about just the depressing nature of murder, of drug abuse, of child molestation, of just dishonesty and lying among people? How do you explain that? I mean, surely if... If, if we were born good, there'd be at least one society that would rise up at some point in history uh, from the good nature of the people born there where there would be goodness. Not, not some goodness, total, uncorrupt goodness, perfect righteousness. Do you know of that place? I don't either because it doesn't exist. There is no such place. I mean, the evidence for our corrupt nature is overwhelming. And the idea that we're born good, well, I want to believe that. Do you want to believe that? I do. I, I do. I find that appealing. But it doesn't line up with reality. However, Scripture's description of us does line up with reality. 
David said this, that I was sinful at birth. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, what he's saying here is I was born sinful. I was born with iniquity. From the very time I was conceived, I was sinful. Well, how can that be? Well, Paul tells us all have fallen short of the glory of God. And he he says this in, in Romans 5, that really what's happening, therefore, is just as sin came into the world through one man, in other words, through Adam, the first man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. We inherit sin. We have a sin nature is what the Bible teaches and, and I think any reasonable look at life, you, you go, yeah, I think that's true. Because, because it is true. It lines up with reality that every one of us are pretty messed up. Paul said even before this, he says, it's written, no one is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. That's why we say, yeah, he's a pretty good guy, but nobody's perfect. There you go, right out of the Bible. No one's good, not one. And it's affirmed all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Psalm 14, they have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Not even one. Now, it's not saying that, that people don't do good deeds, right? And things that are, have a relative uh, aspect of goodness, I mean, we know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. Why? Because it's imprinted in us as being image bearers of God. And so we have the ability to do some good, but not to be good at our core. See, Paul says, furthermore, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The way you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all, he said, all of us were born sinful. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. But where does that core, uncorrupt, perfect goodness come from then? Because God says, I'm holy, therefore you need to what? Be holy. You know what holy means? Holy means separate, different, apart, totally without sin, totally righteous, totally good, totally right all the time. All the time, God is good. That's holiness. That's righteousness. That's goodness. Well, God says, that's what you're supposed to be, Josh. That's what he tells me. And I go, okay, well, let me dig down deep. That's ah, not going to happen. <laughs> it ain't happening because it's, I'm a mess. So where does the goodness God requires come from? Well, Jesus alone is good, and here's the good news of the gospel. He gives us his goodness. He shares it with us. He gives it to you. You're like, how much? Totally free. Totally paid for. No, come on, what do I have to do? Believe. Really? No, come on, Josh. Yeah. That's why it's good news. Like he gives you his goodness. Let's see if we can unpack this a little bit. He gives you his, I told you I'd use this as a synonym, his righteousness. When you hear the term righteousness, what do you think of? Most people 
in our culture at least, we'll tend to think of righteousness as hmm, kind of stuffy, kind of smug, kind of prideful, maybe a little spiteful even. Hey, he thinks he's so righteous. I don't need those righteous people giving me their righteous opinion. You ever hear that? You ever feel that even? I mean, so why? Well, the, the reason sometimes we react that way is because of where maybe that righteousness we're referring to has its foundation or its basis. And there's really kind of two options. The, the first option is in yourself, self-righteousness. That's the righteousness you're reacting to. And the second is Jesus' righteousness, his goodness, which he offers to give to you by faith. And ultimately then, those play themselves out in a third realm of righteousness called practical righteousness. So I want to unpack those three realms of righteousness. Say that 10 times fast this morning, okay? Three realms of goodness or righteousness. And we're going to start with that first one of self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness, self-goodness, maybe you would say, is basically my own goodness, my own righteousness relative to everybody else, relative to other people. It's a relative righteousness. And self-righteousness often ends up being a little stuffy, kind of prideful, vengeful, a little spiteful. Well, why does it end up that way? Well, because at its core, the thing it's based on isn't pure. It's itself, which we've established. We're corrupt. Jesus alone is good. And so self-righteousness, then when it gets challenged, you know, they challenge Jesus. Well, can you find any fault in him? And they're like, no, actually, I can't. Well, if you, if you tried that with me, it would take you about three seconds. You're like, oh, I got a whole list, Josh. Here they are. And then if in my self-righteousness, maybe I would get defensive. I would have to defend the basis of that righteousness, which is myself. And so then self-righteousness becomes stuffy and prideful and spiteful. And I'm a little better than everybody else based on my standard of righteousness. Well, this has been going on from the beginning of time. I mean, Adam and Eve, when they tried... They, they tried to defend themselves and, and cover up with fig leaves when, when God said, did you eat from that tree? No, we didn't. They put on the fig leaf and they hide. Our culture's full of this. You know, and, and Jesus divides people into righteous and unrighteous and everybody starts unrighteous. Self-righteousness is relative to other people. I mean, just turn on the news, right? I mean, there's a kind of rich is poor, rich versus poor. One's righteous, one's unrighteous. Well, no, it's determining of, depends on where you find your self-righteousness or Democrat or Republican. Which one's righteous, which one's un? Well, where is, it's based on self-righteousness. It's us versus them. Mask or no mask, righteous or unrighteous, you know? Self-righteousness, uh, it's relative to other people. And don't deceive yourself because every person in this room, including the guy on the stage, running his mouth, we've all struggled with this and do to varying degrees. Jesus taught against it. Check this out, Luke 18. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men, he said, went up into the temple to pray. 
One is a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisees were religious leaders and they were very zealous uh, for trying to do what's right to please God. And so they had rules on top of their rules, on top of their rules that they found pride in obeying. Rules that they themselves set up. It was a self-centered, self-righteousness, self-goodness. And the Pharisee, uh, standing by himself, here's what he prayed. Check this out. I don't suggest praying this if you come forward to pray with the Barnabas team at the end of the service. He said, uh, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. (laughs) I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See, the Pharisee, when he prayed here in Jesus' story, he justified himself over and over, didn't he? I'm glad I'm not like them. My righteousness compared to other people. I'm, I mean, I'm glad I'm not like all these, you know, li- the list of sinful people, especially that tax collector over there. And Lord, I, I tithe, I, I serve, I do all these good things. Ain't I good? Jesus said, there's, there's one guy, but the tax collector standing far off. I mean, how self-righteous was this guy? The tax collector way off and he's pointing them out. I'm glad I'm not like that guy way back there. Far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We can all be like that Pharisee, finding our righteousness in ourself, justifying ourself, comparing ourselves to others. But the tax collector got it. (laughs) He got it that there is no standard that he matches up to. Because the standard isn't other people, it's Jesus Christ. It's God's perfect holiness, his perfect righteousness and goodness. That's the standard. And Jesus said, he said, I I tell you, unless your righteousness, fine, you want to lean on your self-righteousness? Well, unless your self-righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm telling you, the scribes and Pharisees had rules upon rules upon rules that they obeyed with, with just fervor. And Jesus said, unless you're a whole lot better than them, because many of them externally did good. But Jesus said, unless you're better than that, you'll never make it. But let's assume for a moment that uh, your self-righteousness or your, um, your goodness or someone you know isn't smug, you know, kind of like the Pharisee we read about in Jesus' story. But, but really, you, you genuinely are. And there are a lot of people like this who are pretty good people. They do what's right most of the time. Uh, They have a good attitude towards others. They're kind. They're joyful. They express love. They're really conscientious even of always doing what's right. Friends, the standard isn't relative to other people. It's relative to God who is totally, perfectly just and right and holy and good. And look at what the prophet Isaiah writes 
as God speaks through him of his views of our good deeds. He said, we have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds, all of our good works, every good thing we've ever done, as good as they might be relative to other people, they're like a polluted garment. Well, the English tames that way down. Because in Hebrews, Isaiah writes that what it's really referring to is a menstrual rag, a dirty tampon. Some of you just kind of squirmed. You're like, yeah, it's our righteousness, our self-righteousness is gross before God. It comes nowhere near the standard that he's set up. The best of what Josh can do is just filthy before a perfect and holy God. So self-righteousness isn't the answer of where goodness comes from, is it? Here's what we need, friends. We need to be saved from our self-righteousness, and we need the second realm, an imputed righteousness. I bet you used that word this week, didn't you? Imputed? Probably not, unless you're maybe a CPA or an accountant or somebody, because it's a, it's a financial term a lot of times in our language where it means to uh, attribute, ascribe, assign, or credit, or chalk up to someone else's account a certain balance. Per, th- this is the perfect righteousness of God that is ascribed, credited to, chalked up to, given to my, deposited in my account. That's imputed righteousness, imputed goodness. This is the type of goodness we need at like a core level that's not corrupt in any way, shape, or form. And the only way to get it is to have it imputed into our lives. Paul describes it, his joy in this truth, and I'm gonna unpack it here in a moment, but he says to the Philippian church that, that his joy is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own, Not a self-righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not from trying harder, not from setting up more rules, but from faith. Like It's just there for you to have if you would believe. By faith. You're like, I want that goodness, Josh. I want that righteousness. What do I need to do? Believe. (laughs) Believe. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You're like, I don't have to give. I don't believe. That's the beginning, middle, and sum of the answer to have faith, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the gospel that, and what scripture clearly teaches all throughout that, that God shares Jesus, shares his goodness with us. He imputes it to us. I told you it's a financial term, right? So, so think of it like this way, like a bank account. And there's a transaction that happens two directions. It's a bi-directional transaction whereby when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, his goodness gets imputed to me, into my account. It gets deposited there. All of his good works. I told you earlier, Peter said that Jesus went about doing good deeds. All of his good deeds, all the credit for them get attributed to who? By faith. Me. But there's a second side of this transaction whereby all of my sin, 
all of that, all of those filthy rags, everything that, that I tried to do in my self-righteousness that isn't good enough and the ways that I just totally fail and, and sin in, in, in small and large ways, all of that is imputed to Jesus' account. And it's a two-way transaction. And his death on the cross was to pay the penalty for what was imputed to him because of my sin and your sin, if you would believe. And he died on the cross in my place for me and for you. And then his righteousness was imputed into my account. Think about that if you've trusted Jesus, how incredible that is. Every good and perfect deed that Jesus did, who gets credit? You do. When Jesus had mercy on the adulterous woman, who gets credit for that? You and me. It's his imputed goodness, his imputed righteousness. When he heals those who are sick, when, when every good, it, it all gets credited to my account. Like imagine if Jeff Bezos put in his bank account number wrong on the next transaction he makes and he put in your checking account. And the error was never caught, but somehow it worked out to where all of his billions of dollars were imputed to your account, and now it's yours. Except Jesus didn't make a mistake. He did it on purpose, and if you would trust him and believe, all of his goodness is given to you. And all of your sin, past, present, future, he takes on himself. A great example of this is a guy named Abraham in the Old Testament. Uh, Abram, which was his name at the time, God comes to Abram uh, when he's about 70 years old and he makes a promise to him. He says, Abram, uh, if you follow me, I want you to follow me and I'm going to make you into, uh, I'm going to give you a great name, a threefold promise, a great name, make you into a great nation. And I'm going to give you a great land. Well, years have gone by and you get to Genesis chapter 15 and now Abram is like 100 years old, as well as his wife, uh, Sarah. And um, no, that great nation thing isn't happening. I mean, he was already, you know, she was already kind of past childbearing years when the promise first came. But God said, let's just, let's just make this clear who's doing this. And so waits until they're really old and Pick up the story in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God said, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield and your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord, what are you going to give me? I continue to be childless. The, is the heir of my house Eliezer of Damascus, my servant Eliezer? Is that the heir? Is that where you're going to make a great nation out of me? And then Abram said, yeah, you've given me no children, no offspring, so a member of my house, he'll be my heir. That's how it's going to work, right, God? And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. He said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he brought Abram outside. He said, look toward heaven and number the stars. Go for it, if you're able to number them. Have you been outside over the weekend? It's been incredibly clear. Some of the guys at camp over the weekend, and I got here early this morning. The stars were out. I got out of my truck and looked up and just like, whoa. And God tells Abram, hey, try to count. So go ahead and start counting. See how far you get. That's how your descendants are going to be. Like, I'm going to fulfill my promise in a big way, and it's going to be through your son. Now, Abram's an old dude by any stretch. His wife has been barren. 
for a hundred years. Really? But check this out. Look at what, what happens. Abraham believed the Lord. And what did God do after he believed? He counted it to him, to Abram, as righteousness. And that verse is quoted over and over in the New Testament to point to the, 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 the truth of, of God's imputed righteousness to us through Jesus Christ as we simply believe. It doesn't say that Abraham went and he did all these perfect and good and, and wonderful things. No, it says he did what? He believed and it was credited to him. He believed. We said earlier, Romans 3, that Paul said, no one is righteous, not one. He's quoting from the Old Testament, but here's what he does say then. He says, but now the righteousness of God, in other words, Jesus has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they bear witness to Jesus. It goes on to righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For everyone who would believe, there's no distinction if you would believe his goodness, his righteousness is given to you. That is such good news. Can never do it on our own. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all pretty messed up. We can't do it on our own. But we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. Friend, it's a gift to you. Where does goodness come from? You're not born good. I'm not. It's a gift. It's imputed to us. And our sin is imputed to Jesus on the cross. And it's a, it's a transaction of faith. To be justified, that term, it's a legal term that means to be declared righteous. To be declared good. And not like kind of good, like doing some good. No, completely, perfectly righteous. To be declared that. Not earned, but, but God looks at you in your faith in Christ, and now you're in Christ, and he declares you, he declares me to be righteous. And my whole identity has changed. And I'm no longer a sinner, but I'm a saint. Do I still sin? Until Jesus comes and completes all of that. But positionally, I'm in Christ. Friends, if you haven't trusted Jesus, that's where goodness comes from. And remember, it all happens through faith. That's why Paul was so excited to say he wanted to be found in him to the Philippian church, not having a righteousness of his own, but that which comes from faith, through faith in Christ. It's why he says what he does to the church in Corinth. He says, for our sake... God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Do you see that? He made him to be sin. In other words, he took all of our sin and it was, I'm giving you just the, I'm hammering this word so you're gonna know a theological term now when you leave. He imputed our sin onto Jesus Christ on the cross. He made him to be sin, the one who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. There's the other side of the transaction. All of his goodness, all of his righteousness, which I, I don't live up to in any way, shape, or form, is imputed to me in spite of me. Not because I'm good, but because Jesus is. Friends, that's the heart of the gospel. You, any shot at goodness, you need it to be imputed into your life. And, and when that happens it results in that third realm of righteousness, which is practical righteousness. 
or you might call it the, the, the sanctification that happens, your righteous sanctification over time, where over time you become more and more sanctified. That means holy, more and more like Jesus, more good, where over time it, it, it works itself out in your life. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit. See that as you trust Jesus, uh, he takes, it's a gift exchange. That's how Martin Luther described it. You give him all your junk, he gives you all his good. And then you begin to, to live it out. Paul wrote this, he said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's practical righteousness, sanctification, fruit of the spirit. By testing, you may discern what the will of God is, good, acceptable, and perfect. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. In Ephesians 2, Paul is emphatic that you and I are saved not by our good works, but by faith, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with me, so that we can't boast about it. Like that Pharisee Jesus talked about praying in self, relative self-righteousness. However, while he's incredibly emphatic about the fact that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he's equally as emphatic that that would result in good works in your life. See, because in, in verse 10, he says, we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, Jesus' little brother James said, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He, he was incredibly insistent about this, as was Paul, as was Jesus. See, friends, uh, Jesus alone is good. And, and the great news of the gospel is he gives us his goodness. And it doesn't end there, though. Then he insists that we do good. He insists that we do. It's what we're called to. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here as we wrap up uh, because we've talked about it over and over already in the fruit of the Spirit and last week with kindness and, and patience and all, all those things, and we'll talk about it more. But you got to understand this, this, this piece of this, when Jesus insists we do good, that it comes after he gives us his goodness. See, good works never lead to righteousness. They don't. Now, some of you, maybe you've been taught this or you've experienced this, that if, if you would do enough good things, if you would get it right, then finally, over time, once you're finally good enough, you'll be accepted and God will love you and he won't be angry with you anymore. And, but man, you gotta start getting your life together. You got to put, a, I mean, you, you got to quit sinning. Quit doing all that stupid stuff. You, you need to start doing what's right. And you need to do all of this to earn God's favor. But here's the problem. Good works never results in that perfect righteousness. Never. It's the exact opposite in the gospel. That, that Jesus makes you good. He imputes his righteousness to you. You're changed, you're made new. And now you can live that out. You can be who you truly are. Now, are you gonna stumble at times? Yeah. Are you still messed up to a degree? Yeah, but guess what? Jesus has rescued you, he saved you, and he's faithful to complete what he began. And one day he's gonna make you totally perfect, totally new with him forever. And sin will be gone. See, the, say like this, 
in terms of those good works, friend, it doesn't ever result in righteousness because you can be born in the church. You can be baptized in the church. I was baptized as a baby, uh, as a believer later. You can be born in the church, baptized in the church. You can go to Sunday school in the church. You can serve in the church. You can get married in the church. You can get confirmed in the church. You can take communion in the church. You can serve in the church. You can have your funeral in the church and still spend eternity in hell, separated from God under his wrath for sin because you never had Jesus' righteousness imputed to you by faith. You don't need to be in church. You need to be in Christ. And it happens by faith. And then that righteousness will lead to the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Get that order right. Let me pray.